Envy sees and desires what it doesn't have. But envy goes further. It's not just wanting what the other person has. Envy wants the other person not to have it. Envy is displeasure over the good of another, whether it's prosperity or health or any other possession which men prize. It's interesting how art and literature have portrayed the envious man. He's always pictured as a sickly person. For example, our phrase, green with envy, comes from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. But think of some of the obvious examples of envy that we know about. You remember Tanya Harding? She was the Olympic ice skater, the first USA woman to land a triple axel. In 1994, Tanya Harding became notorious in conjunction with her attack on her competitor, Nancy Kerrigan. The attack took place during a practice session for the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Detroit. Tanya, her ex-husband, and her bodyguard hired a hitman to break Nancy Kerrigan's right leg so she would be unable to skate. The hitman missed his chance, and so he followed Kerrigan to Detroit after failing to find her at her training rink in Massachusetts and struck her repeatedly on the thigh three inches above the knee with a police baton. Kerrigan's leg was only bruised, not broken, but the injury forced her to withdraw from the national championship. And Harding later admitted to her role in planning and helping to cover up the attack, and when she was pressed, she said, I was jealous. But this is not the only case. A thousand sitcoms and movies and plays have explored the conflict, the drama of the response of the single young woman upon hearing that her best friend is getting married. And the conflict is, can she be happy for her? So have you ever known, as we begin to think about envy, and we'll see this in Technicolor in our text, have you ever known a person to confess envy as sin? It's sort of like worry. Can't remember when I've heard somebody confess worry as sin. I've been with people that have confessed their pride and their lust and their gluttony, but I don't recall ever being with someone who is repenting of their envy. You may not think there's anything particularly wicked about this sin, but there's something extraordinarily mean and nasty in the person who's unhappy and disappointed when another succeeds and even glories in another's misfortunes. Such a heart betrays an utter absence of love. In history, envy has been the the cause of some of the greatest crimes. In fact, the second notable sin in world history, the murder of Abel was prompted by the sin of envy. Cain couldn't bear that there be anyone more acceptable to God than himself, so he murdered his own brother. And the issue of envy and jealousy is inescapable in Scripture because there are volumes of Scripture. It's interesting how conditioned we are to read past it over and over again. For example, in 1 Samuel 8, you have envy portrayed as a national sin. You have the nation of Israel, the whole nation, looks at what other nations around them have. Israel wants an earthly king. And so they are told, well, this earthly king will tax you heavily, enslave you, and serve his own lust over the good of the people. And the the nation of Israel says, yep, that's what we want. So envious are they of their neighboring countries. But then scripture repeatedly warns us of the ill effects of envy. Proverbs 14 says, a a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, describing love, says it flatly, categorically, 
Love does not envy. Romans 1, in the the list of wicked actions that the Lord gives men over to engage in, he says that such men are full of envy. In 1 Corinthians 3, in his apostolic critique of the church at Corinth, Paul tells them, you're acting like unbelievers. And what is the proof? They're engaging in envy. In Galatians 5, in the list of the distinguishing character traits of unbelievers, the works of the flesh, right there in the midst of fornication, heresy, and murder is jealousy, envy. We'll come in a few weeks to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see those. The, Peter gives us a list of traits that are to be mortified in the life of the believer, and one of those is envy. In James chapter 3, when he's teaching the church what godly wisdom is, the wisdom from above, and he says this wisdom is not shown by envy because envy produces confusion and every evil thing. In fact, it could easily be proven that envy was the reason for the death of Christ. We're told in Mark chapter 15 that the chief priests in their their attempts to arrest the Lord Jesus and crucify him were driven by envy. They're envious of our Lord's wisdom and holiness. Tonight we're going to dig in deep to Scripture. So I hope you have your Bibles. I hope you will open them with me to Numbers chapter 11, the passage that Pastor Anderson read in your hearing a moment ago. I'll remind you that you and I are commanded to engage in diligent study of the scriptures. For example, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to be diligent to present yourself a workman. That means your sleeves should be being rolled up right now. A workman, approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In fact, the command to Joshua even, even though his canon of scripture was this big, the command to Joshua in Joshua 1.8 was, this book shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. That's what I'm calling you to do tonight, to dig in deep. And I, and I will say that you need to understand the narrative because this, this issue of envy versus contentment is taught in the narrative. And so you'll need to follow along and see how the narrative proceeds. Let's seek the Lord's help now. Well, Sovereign Lord, we tremble to open your holy word knowing that we must handle it rightly. And so help us Send the Holy Spirit to be our instructor and to teach us truth. Deeply impress upon our consciences where we fall short and show us how to walk in the light. As we study this man, Joshua, point us to the greater Joshua in whose name we pray. Amen. We began two sermons ago, our study that will certainly take us all year and perhaps some of next year, of the man in the book, Joshua. And when we first met Joshua in Exodus 17, He was obediently and bravely leading the armies of Israel to a hard-fought victory over Amalek. And then the next time we met him was in Exodus 32. We saw Joshua patiently and faithfully waiting for six weeks on Moses at the midpoint of Mount Sinai, showing again his steadfastness, his patience, his ability to obey unquestioningly. And he's contrasted sharply. Joshua is, here's Moses on top of the mountain, Here's the nation of Israel down at the foot of the mountain engaging in idolatry. Joshua is contrasted with the nation at the foot of the mountain. And in our brief study of Joshua so far, he seems almost perfect, unflawed. But tonight, if even in the slightest way, and we will see that because of Moses' rebuke of Joshua, Moses is rebuking specific sin. 
If even in the slightest way, Joshua demonstrates that he indeed is a son of Adam with the same struggles we have, that we're thankful for this Joshua, but we need a greater Joshua. And I want to examine this strange incident that Pastor Anderson read a moment ago, which happens long before Joshua ascends to the leadership of Israel. And so notice very carefully the text. Look at Numbers 11, and you'll want to be following along very carefully. Here's the background to the sin that Moses rebukes. Look at the first five or six verses. And what we find in verse 1 is the people of Israel were complaining. Now, moms and dads, I, I have, to, have to say this. And I would tell you that in terms of child discipline in the home, sometimes people try to, to blunt the force of this and say, well, it's not really complaining. It's more like whining. I would actually say whining is more obnoxious than complaining. It's complaining with a drone, sort of. But in terms of discipline, it's one of the things that we as parents need to be wise about. What is it that arouses the holy anger of God? Hardly anything more than complaining. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And so what we see is the Lord sends a a burning flame to consume some of his complainers. And we read in verse 4. This keeps up, by the way. You would think that verses 1 and 2 would sort of be an inoculation against future complaining, but it's not. Complaining turns out it's it's obsession with many. So in verse 4, we read that some wicked men led Israel to keep complaining. And notice what they do. They engage in historical revision, and they claim that their diet back in Egypt in slavery was great, and the heavenly manna they didn't even have to work for in verse 6 was not. One of the things complaining does is it, is it makes you revise history, and it makes you stupid in terms of not understanding what's a blessing and what isn't. So then look at verse 10 through 15. The people of Israel are so distressed. This complaining has gripped their hearts so hard that they're so discontent. Look at verse 10, that they go back to their tents and they weep. This sounds worse than the brattiest three-year-old, that they're all discontent. And so once again, look at verse 10, the Lord's anger is aroused. Mom and dad, do you get it yet? That complaining and whining arouses the holy wrath of God. And so it's something that should be addressed very quickly and very early on. And so Moses, who's in the middle of this, Moses, because of these recalcitrant people, lays out his case before the Lord. Look at verse 11 through 15. And Moses himself, by the way, seems to be falling into a little bit of complaining himself. Look at verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you've laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And this is when Moses really gets dramatic. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. 
Well, notice the key observation in verse 14. If there's a, a key issue that is brought up by the narrative in verse 14, Moses is stating to the Lord that he can't bear the burden of leadership alone. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to not run down a side path here, but I'm going to take the first step down a side path. And that is, one of the things you learn in Numbers 11 is the goodness of plural eldership, plural leadership. What Moses is asking for is other elders, other leaders. And he is so excited by the end of the chapter because the Lord has raised up 70 of them. And he tells us why. He even complains to the Lord in verse 14 and says, I can't do this alone. And that's because he wasn't meant to do it alone. In both the Old and New Testament, the model for leadership is always a plurality of leaders. So the Lord answers Moses. Look carefully at verse 16 through 20. The Lord answers Moses in mercy and the complaining people in wrath and judgment. Look at his answer to Moses in verse 16 and 17. Here's the answer. Here's God's answer to Moses' request. Give me more leaders. In verse 16, the Lord says, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I'll take of the spirit that's upon you and put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it alone. You see what this is? A plurality of leaders is God's mercy. It's a good thing when God raises up a plurality of leaders. Again, you see Presbyterian government, the foundations here. But then, look at verses 18 through 20. This is God's answer of judgment to complaining Israel. This is stunning in terms of how he's going to judge. Now remember, he's already consumed by holy fire several of the complainers. But look at verses 18 through 20. You shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat for as well with us in Egypt? Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? The Lord is about to give unbelieving Israel the desire of their hearts but with leanness. Many is the time when God gives us a request and the answer is a temporal judgment. So after, after asking logistical questions like, Lord, where are you going to get all this meat? And the Lord res, reminding Moses of his omnipotence. Moses begins to carry out the instructions of the Lord. Look at verse 24 and what Moses is doing. Moses is gathering the 70 men just like the Lord commanded him. And then the Lord keeps the promise he made in verse 25. And he pours out his spirit upon these 70 men. Now, this is all background. All of this is just set up. So after the 70 men are so, supposed to be gathered around the tent of meeting, and these are going to be Moses' helpers, and oh, is he glad to see these 70 men. He thinks there are 70 there. He hasn't done a hard count, hasn't called roll. And this young man comes running up to him. And he has a concern in verse 27. Here's his concern. Eldad and Medad 
are prophesying in the camp. So what is this young man's concern? Look at verse 26 very carefully. You're going to have to be very sharp focused on the text here. In verse 26 we read, But two men had remained in the camp. They hadn't come out to the tent of meeting as was commanded. Two men had remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad. But notice what we're told. The spirit rested upon them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. So uh, I want us to be very clear here. The, the directions of the Lord were very precise. Seventy men? Yes, Moses had said it. At the tent of meeting? Yes, Moses had said it. Take their stand there with you? Yes, Moses had said it. This is what Moses had tried to do. Look at verse 24. Moses gathered the 70, stations them around the tent. But in actuality, it was only 68 men because two of the 70 had stayed back in the camp. Look at verse 26. They were listed. They were part of the 70. They had not gone out to the tent of meeting. So here seems to be the concern of the young man who comes running up to Moses in verse 27. And I hate to use a tattletale voice, but that's the voice you have to use. In verse 27, Moses, Eldad, and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Maybe you have one of these people who lives in your house. We always seem to have one. <clears throat> Maybe we're the only people here who had children like that. So the concern seems to be for disorderliness or even rebellion against God's ordained leadership. Hadn't the Lord said in verse 16, bring the 70 to the tent? Yes, he had. Hadn't Moses clearly communicated that? Yes, he had. So where were these two? Where were Eldad and Medad, and why weren't they at the tent of meeting? And one of the great studies in, in Old Testament history is, where were these two, and why weren't they at the tent of meeting? And commentators have engaged in mountains of speculation. Calvin himself thinks that the call went out to the 70, but the two were outside the camp and didn't hear it. The problem is, Scripture doesn't say that. We don't have any explanation revealed, so we shouldn't speculate. But this was to be the commissioning service for the 70, who would help Moses in the governing of the people, which he'd found increasingly unbearable. And so we have to ask, were these two men, Eldad and Medad, were they rebellious men? Well, there they were, prophesying in the camp, not at the tent of meeting. This seems to be the concern of the young man's report in verse 27. And here's where Joshua shows up. Look carefully at your text in verse 28. So the man comes up, this unnamed young man comes and runs and tells Moses, Moses, Eldad and Medad prophesying in the camp, not at the tent of meeting like you said. And notice who answers. He butts in. He gives an unsolicited word. The young man hadn't come to report to Joshua, but to Moses. Look at verse 27. Be very clear about who's being reported to in verse 27. Being reported, it's being reported to Moses. But Joshua is the first to respond. He butts in with unsolicited advice. This is why I tell parents to teach your children that glorious gospel Hank Williams song, Mind Your Own Business, which is so important to teach to your children early. And since Joshua is our subject for the next year, how are we to understand this outburst? Look at verse 28 clearly. Where Moses says, or Joshua says, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Well, a few things we should notice. Let's give Joshua all the credit we can. 
Joshua shows loyalty to Moses. Joshua does not want any rebellion. And Joshua has a concern that all things be done decently and in order, and don't we too? Certainly a virtue we embrace. And Joshua, to his credit, doesn't go and rebuke Eldad and Medad himself. All this is praiseworthy. Well, let's ask, was there anything wrong in Joshua's response? Obviously there was, or he wouldn't have been checked so quickly by Moses in his reproof. Look at verse 29 in this stinging reproof that Moses makes. Moses turns to Joshua, who's spoken out of turn, and says, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now, as we analyze this reproof, and it certainly is a reproof, verse 29 is, let's study who gives it. This is a man who's greatly burdened by the responsibility of leading the people of God, which is pressing down on him. Remember verse 14 and 15, where he's, his shoulders are about to break as he's leading a, a difficult, complaining nation. Moses is being pushed down into the dirt. This fact conditions his response to Joshua. He's greatly troubled. And also, this man Moses is an eminently humble man. Look just below this in your Bible at Numbers 12, verse 3, when the same thing happens in the next chapter, when Miriam and Aaron, his own siblings, speak against him. And look what the text tells us in Numbers 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. So the man who reproves Joshua is a burdened man. He needs help. And he's a humble man. Now, I want you to look at the, the parts of Moses' reproof because there are huge lessons for us here. And there's a linguistic issue I want you to see. I don't want to jump past it. Look at verse 29. Moses asked the probing question, Are you zealous for my sake? Now, I'm going to make the argument. I won't go into all the weeds. I won't go into all the Hebrew terms. But there's a translation and a linguistic issue here. All the following texts translate this, Are you jealous for my sake. New American Standard, ESV, NIV, ASV, KJV, Calvin's commentary. I could go on and on and on. The KJV says, envious thou for my sake, which I, I like the poetry of that. But this is, the New King James stands alone as a translation in saying, are you zealous for my sake? Everybody else translates it as jealous. And the implication, no matter how you look at it, is that Joshua was envious. The question isn't, was Joshua jealous or not? The question is, why? If he's jealous for Moses' sake, doesn't Joshua realize how much help Moses needs? If he's jealous for his own sake, then he's showing the sin of envy as we normally think of it. And then look at Moses' sincere desire, what he tells Joshua in verse 29. He's teaching him a leadership principle. Look at verse 29 carefully. He says, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And what Moses is thinking, maybe if they were all prophets, they wouldn't be complaining. Not just 68 or 70 people, but all of them. And what does Moses mean when he says this? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. He's using hyperbole. One Scottish commentator from the 19th century says, This isn't to be understood in the absolute sense as though every individual in Israel was a prophet. For then who'd be left to prophesy to or teach or rule? But to be taken comparatively. And it goes to show how far Moses was from a jealous spirit. 
he would be glad if it were God's plan for every man to have as great or greater gifts than he. Such was the humility of Moses. Had Joshua forgotten that God alone can give the true gift of prophecy, not just to the 68 men who are registered and are at the tent of meeting, but also to the two who were in the camp were still registered? It was the real deal given by God that the two men were exercising as a token of God's favor, distinguishing them as helpers for Moses in the governing of Israel. Moses seems to be saying to Joshua, Joshua, if God hasn't restrained Eldad and Medad, then why should I? We need all the qualified people we can get to govern this stiff-necked nation. We need help. And so, Joshua, I don't want just 68. I'll take 70, and if God raises up more, I'd welcome them too. How do we apply this? I want you to hone in on the issue of the rebuke. Look at verse 29. And what you have is a specific issue being rebuked. And what we should learn here is godly men, and Joshua is certainly a godly man. Godly men who are loyal to their superiors, who are seeking to build the kingdom of God, can and do struggle with envy, jealousy. Some commentators have said this is because Joshua was part of the 70. He had his own agenda at stake. Well, even if he's only tinged with a little bit of envy, he's still jealous. In the next chapter, Numbers 12, there's a horrible outbreak of jealousy in Moses' own family, Aaron and Miriam, his older siblings. And that simple issue, an outbreak of jealousy, delays the forward progress of the nation of Israel until God deals with Moses' jealous sister, Miriam. This sin of jealousy has plagued noteworthy people, better people than you and I. Remember John's disciples? In John chapter 3, his disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, are jealous. Jealous of Jesus' success. Even the apostles argued among themselves because of jealousy over who would be the greatest. This kind of thing was present in seed form in Joshua, and Moses checks it and stops it immediately. Who here tonight could say, Carl, I've never had a problem with jealousy. No envy whatsoever. It never bothers me when others are advancing in gifts and usefulness. And my friend, you're a more sanctified man than Joshua and Miriam and the twelve. Are you always looking for a technicality you can use to restrain other useful brethren lest they outstrip you? Consider the great damage that envy and jealousy will do to you. Never mind what it will do to others. Proverbs says that jealousy is rottenness to the bones. Consider the great damage jealousy will do to others. In Proverbs 24, we are taught that jealousy is more damaging to others than wrath and anger. Some of you have lived in and are living in currently homes that are torn apart by angry people, but Proverbs says jealousy is worse. In James chapter 3, James tells us jealousy produces disorder and every evil thing. Because they were jealous of him, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Because they were jealous of him, Daniel's contemporaries had him thrown in a lion's den. Jealousy, by the way, is always cloaked with reasons. People don't just come out and say, I am jealous of him, I want what he has or his recognition. So the real issue we should be saying right now is not just what we should mortify. I think we all would agree, if we're honest with the text, that jealousy and envy are wicked. 
The real issue isn't just what to put off, but what to put on. And so for the envious man, if you've ever struggled with this, let me tell you, if I were stranded on a desert island with 10 books, I would want one of them to be Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I read it every year, and every year I'm struck again with how astoundingly practical and convicting it is. And there Burroughs teaches that contentment is the root of inward peace. It is a, it's a safeguard against jealousy and envy. Contentment remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into the world and we can surely take nothing out. Envy causes us to look horizontally at what others have, and so I'll never be satisfied. But contentment causes me to look vertically and see that the triune God is enough. Contentment, by the way, can be learned. If you think, well, this is just who we are. I grew up in a jealous house, an envious house, and a bitter house. That's just who we are. Paul testifies in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state to be content. Now, contentment doesn't come natural. Obviously, no one comes out of the womb content. You have never met a content three-month-old. No, we come out of the womb jealous, envious, discontent, and coveting. Contentment is a matter of humbly, happily accepting from God's hand what he sovereignly sends because we know that he's a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. You see, envy is a fundamental attack on God's sovereign provision. The jealous man really doesn't believe that God has given him what is best. The content person can say, all things I have are the gifts of a wise God. It's nothing less than a wholehearted trust in a sovereign God. And so let me ask you, if you struggle with envy, do you acknowledge it? Do you confess it? Do you repent of it? Do you mortify it? I've known many who are always making comparisons. I, I wish I didn't have this. I wish I had what he had. But they'll never acknowledge that what they are doing is the sin of envy and jealousy. The failure to confess envy is sin. To repent of it and mortify it will only lead you into the deep, dark abyss of bitterness. If you struggle with envy, do you pray? Asking for the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit to mortify this ugly cancer, and it is ugly. If you understand the dynamic of sanctification of the New Testament, the put off and put on, what you're commanded repeatedly to put off is the sin of envy and to put on contentment and love for your neighbor. I would tell you by way of application as well, those who are burdened to see the kingdom of God go forward won't ever be jealous when he raises up gifted workers. Moses isn't bothered in the least that God is bringing others to the forefront. He's delighted. What should we do at Woodruff Road when we hear that the Lord is raising up other faithful gospel laborers down the street, across the city and in the county? We should celebrate. We should rejoice and say with Moses, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. We should rejoice that Christ, the head of the church, is calling laborers into the harvest. Let's pray together. Oh, God, our gracious Father, the psalmist has taught us to sing and pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But we confess that we have wanted and envied and been jealous. Cleanse us from such wickedness. Replace our envy with settled joy and contentment. 
knowing that you are the greatest treasure we may possess and the purest joy we can know. And empower us to know that contentment that is taught in Scripture. And remind us frequently that you are truly working all things together for good for the called, the elect, and your people. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen.